Thank you again for that uh, over-the-top gift. It's a joy to be part of this congregation and fellowship and to, in so many ways, um, grow here, grow up here, grow in faith and in community and in family. And I uh, consider it a real privilege to be part of this place. Thanks, Linda, for reading that um, passage. Let me pull out right in the middle of that passage to get us started. Um, by posing to you the same question that was posed to Simon. So I want you to uh, hear the question and uh, answer along with Simon as well. So the question is this. You have borrowed two months' worth of wages from the bank. Do the calculations. Figure out how much you make per hour or what you bring home each month. Two months' worth. Get that number in your figure, in your head, get that figure in your head. You've borrowed that from the bank. The person seated beside you or behind you has borrowed a little over two years' wages from the bank. What would that be? Assume same income that you make, same figure based on hourly wages, whatever you want to listed as. You and the person that's seated near you, neither one of you can pay the banker back. And unlike any banker I know, the banker realizing your plight forgives both your debts, wipes it clean. No refinancing no, let's reconfigure the note. No, um, no payments until 2017. None of that. The debt's gone. And Jesus asks you, which one will be um, more favorable toward the banker? Which one of you will love the banker more? Simon says, oh, that's a good game. Simon says that it's the one who had the two and a half years worth of debt that will love more. And Jesus says that's the right answer. So this is the parable that sits right in the middle of this passage in Luke chapter 7. The story begins in verse 36. We're going to take a look at this larger story, but right in the middle of it is this parable. You owe two and a half months' worth of debt. Neighbor friend of yours sitting right near you owes two and a half years' worth of debt. Both of you get forgiven. Who's going to love more? Simon says, the one who was forgiven more. Why won't the one who's forgiven less love as much? Well, maybe we can explore some of that in the course of this morning. I know for me, one of the thoughts that I would have would be, well, I should have borrowed two years' worth. <laughs> Had I known that it was going to get forgiven, I would have done a whole lot more borrowing than this and be a little ticked that uh, the person seated near me gets such a much larger sum forgiven. 
And somehow in that moment, a blessing becomes a frustration. Isn't it crazy how that sometimes works that way? I do an exercise with organizations sometimes. And I break them up into groups and I assign them to various departments of an organization. There's the maintenance department, the um, counseling department, the human resource department, the grant writing department, capital campaign department. And I give them each a sheet of paper that says um, what their needs are for their individual department. There are about three or four in each group. And I tell them at the beginning of this exercise that we have a $100,000 surplus in this $2.5 million annual income or $5 million annual income company. And we've decided to let the employees make a decision as to how we're going to spend or use that surplus of $100,000. And on their little sheets of paper, it tells them what their need is, that employees have gone about three years without a raise, that grant writing would like one more employee to... Um, write more grants, that the roof is leaking and maintenance needs new furnace. And when they come to their first meeting, they realize that there's a $100,000 surplus and there's about $170,000 worth of needs that these departments are bringing with them to the meeting. I allow them to meet for about three and a half minutes and then they go back and discuss some more. Then they come back and meet again to try and hash out Who's going to give? Who's going to hold steady? Who's going to work at resolving this conflict? Are there any creative solutions? It is fascinating to watch how a $100,000 blessing becomes a $100,000 curse in many ways as they debate and fight over what department's going to get what they really want in this journey. I don't think it's a far stretch to put it into this context with this parable where something that appears wonderful all of a sudden as I compare to someone else, I find myself frustrated, angry, that, that this wonderful blessing wasn't more, or maybe not even realizing that it was a blessing when I start the comparison game. So the story falls into a larger story. I mentioned to you that it starts Luke chapter 7, verse 36. All four Gospels have a story like this. They're not all identical. Matthew and Mark are almost identical. I believe that in Mark, you'll find it in Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 1. The Matthew rendition is Matthew 26, verse 6. And you'll see that both of those stories happen toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the last week of his earthly life. And it says that it takes place in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about who Simon the leper is. He just appears in this story in Matthew and Mark. And the story is told of a woman who shows up at this dinner that is thrown for Jesus. And she opens up an alabaster box of perfume, pours it over Jesus' head. She is commended for what she does, for she is preparing Jesus for the death and burial. And that her story will be told throughout the ages. That's Matthew and Mark. John's is similar 
It takes place in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. But there are a few distinct differences. In John's story, it takes place at Lazarus' house, the brother of Mary and Martha. And it's Mary who comes. She's named in John's story. And breaks the jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. There is a storyline about how much this could have been sold for and fed, how many people that were poor could be fed as a result of doing that. But Jesus, as in the other two stories, commends her in saying that this prepares me for my death and burial. Luke's story, though it has some similarities, has some striking differences. In Luke's story, it's neither Simon the leper nor Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha. It's Simon the Pharisee. Like John's, a woman comes, but the woman is unnamed, like Matthew and Mark. But she is described as a sinner. So we have Simon the Pharisee and a woman, the sinner. Two labels that we have as we enter in this story. She, like John's story, breaks open a jar of perfume after having cried so many tears over Jesus' feet and pours the perfume over Jesus' feet. This says nothing about preparing for Jesus' burial It takes place so much earlier in Jesus' ministry and seems to be all about forgiveness and love. So let's stay with Luke's story this morning and see what we might want to pull out from the story that we're told in this gospel writer's depiction of the life of Jesus. You heard it said, there's a dinner that's thrown, and in many ways, this is a dinner about, not necessarily for, but about Jesus. Simon, the Pharisee, apparently is very intrigued by both what Jesus does and what Jesus says, and thought it would be great to bring Jesus to dinner and have some great conversation about the things that Jesus has been saying. And so everyone gathers around the table. And somehow a woman makes her way into the house where the meal is being served, stands behind Jesus as he is, would be the custom of that time, sits reclined at a table, typically with feet out behind him as he leans to his side, either on the table or resting on his arm, propping himself up. Simon, we are told, we don't exactly know why, but he missed some very important hospitality cues. When Jesus came, he was not greeted with the kind of greeting kiss that is often given to somebody when they show up. Having walked some dusty roads, he was neither given any water to wipe his feet off or a towel to wipe his feet off. That would be typical of that time. And We can't quite tell. It is possible 
that this was an intentional slight by Simon, but we don't know that for sure. It could be that Simon was so preoccupied with getting everything ready for all of the guests that Jesus showed up in the midst of all the busyness that was going on, and it was just a terrible oversight. Either way, it was noted by Jesus that it took place. Because in contrast to Simon, this woman, overwhelmed with who Jesus was and what he represented to her, shed so many tears and shed them over Jesus' feet that it was almost as if he had been given a bowl of water. She took her hair down from whatever it was in and used her hair to wipe the tears and the dust off of his feet, kissed the feet, took the jar of perfume and poured them over the feet. Simon, the Pharisee, and let me emphasize, not derogatorily the Pharisee, because that's how we think of the term Pharisee now, but at the time it would have been a term of holy honor. A Pharisee, one who obeys the law, one who keeps God's commands. Simon, a Pharisee. Whoa. And here's the woman, a sinner. Simon says to himself, huh, that Jesus was a prophet. If he really was a prophet, he'd know who it is that's come into my house. And he certainly wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's heart and confronts him with this parable that we've already wrestled with. There are just a number of directions you could go with this passage, things that you could draw out. You could jump into what Jesus does with the gender issues that um, we find in that culture and how Jesus handles those things in his lifetime. It's difficult for us to appreciate the extent of the patriarchal nature of that culture and the ways in which Jesus lifted women up and honored them and called them not just participants in ministry and activity, but partners in ministry and activity. There was this exaltation of who women were and are. And the ways in which Jesus did that in the culture of that time is radical. We could wrestle with what that means today. Have we learned at all from what Jesus teaches? I, I know that there are different ways to parse statistics and to work with numbers, but it was asserted a few years ago based on the 2010 numbers that two-thirds of all work done in the world is done by women who receive one-tenth of all of the wages of the world and own one-hundredth of all the property 
of the world. It'd be nice to think that we are so enlightened in the United States that we are setting the example and moving far ahead in all of our endeavors, and yet the most recent statistics I see are that for comparable work in the United States, a woman will make 77 cents for every dollar that a man makes for comparable work. It's not right. It's incumbent on us to speak into our culture. It's uncomfortable to do so, but it's important to do so. To carry on the approach that Jesus took to those who find themselves in positions where they are where they're held at bay, where they are given limited opportunities, Jesus over and over and over speaks into the culture of his day, embracing people, talking to people that were viewed as unclean, moving into their circle, giving them value and speaking a future into their life. Are we participating into that future that Jesus has spoken of? I sure hope so. I would hate to think that all of us are Simons, who find in this story great value in identifying the woman as a sinner because it seems to me that somehow that makes Simon the Pharisee so much more righteous. Is my righteousness dependent upon somebody else being less righteous? Is it dependent on being able to point out how everyone else is not quite up to snuff, not quite doing it as well. Probably only so because someone else's sins might be more visible than mine. (laughs) What a terrible way by which to judge righteousness in comparison to someone else. or to make judgments on success on that issue at all. Speak about success. My goodness, I'm sorry that you didn't get the opportunity this morning. Um, Frank Morgan, uh, one of the participants in our early service, had a friend that came to visit. I asked Frank to interview her. Her name is Janet Barnes. We got to spend about uh, five to ten minutes with her in the early service talking about her life's journey. She talked about, in college, coming to know the Lord, gave her life to Jesus Christ. Um, She said it was just because I had a lot of friends that told me that God had a future in mind for me. It was beautiful. And she said it wasn't just one person that told me, a lot of people told me. And I thought, well, I think I'd far rather have that future than my own, and so... (laughs) She became a Christian, and her big reluctance was, if I don't have to be a missionary, that was kind of the big qualifier. So she was following Jesus and wasn't sure where it was going to take her, but attempted a number of things. She was interested in ministry. She said, I tried children's ministry, and it was a disaster. I attempted to work with youth, and it was even worse. I... um, I tried to go into women's ministries, and uh, that was not really a good fit at all. She said, and then I heard of somebody who translated scriptures for their life journey. She thought, 
I really like that idea. Go live with people, learn their language, and then go off by yourself and try and write some things, then go back with the people again and work on this. So she joined up with Wycliffe Translators. She was assigned to a tribe on a river that runs between Brazil and Colombia. She went there in 1970, and she's still working on the translation. She had in her hand the recently published New Testament for the Tuatu tribe. It's amazing to hear the dedication, the commitment, the work for a group that numbers a thousand whose only way to hear the good news is for somebody to come and translate the good news into their very unique, very difficult language. No other missionaries in that area. She just went and has been living with them for, what is that, 46 years? She's now working on the book of Ruth, just finished up Exodus, runs it by some of the friends that she's made in the tribe to help her work through some of the difficult nature of that language. Talk about an all-star. I don't know how you judge that in terms of success. How do you compare that? You don't. It is just amazing what she's done. So we could look at this passage as well, not only from the perspective of what Jesus does in speaking into certain groups of people within culture. We can look at it through the lens of Simon, who does this comparison game that it would appear the only way he can make himself feel good is to compare to someone else and thereby naming them out of their history instead of naming them by their future. Or we can listen to what Jesus does in what he names in this passage. He says in this little parable, those who have been forgiven much, love much. It is hard sometimes to forgive. It is equally and sometimes even more difficult to receive forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven little, I am convinced, have only been forgiven little because they don't realize how much is needed to be forgiven. It is easy to move into that place of arrogance to think that I'm doing real well with all that I've been given. I'm not even sure that I need a Savior because I'm using my talents real well to save myself. But it doesn't work real well. Without God's grace, it always devolves into the self-serving approach that ends up harming myself after it has harmed so many others. It is a way by which I become isolated because of the way I end up pushing others away. It is a way in which my arrogance leaves me in a place where I think I need no one else and I certainly don't need God. Is there any more 
depth of need than that? Simon has the potential to be forgiven of everything, whatever everything is for Simon. It's not that Simon doesn't have more for which to be forgiven. It's really not that Simon's debt is just two months' wages. It's that Simon does not understand the depth of his need. And that's so often the problem with those of us who have dabbled in this Christian faith for a while. We so often fail to realize the depth of what Christ offers to move us from all of those things that do not build up but actually destroy and to paint for us a future of forgiveness and faithfulness and love. Here's the piece, though, that I, I don't know if it means much to you, but this is the piece that just jumps out to me. This is the one thing I take home and want to sit with and wrestle with for so long. And it's this. That Jesus says both in the parable and to Simon and to the woman. It is love that follows forgiveness. Not forgiveness that follows love. It's not that I love and prove myself to God so that God will forgive me. It's just the opposite. In the midst of my inability to love or to love well, forgiveness is offered. And to the depth that I understand forgiveness and how much I have been forgiven, that's the extent to which I am able to love. So the question comes down to, D, how are you doing at loving? If I'm honest in that inventory... I find myself sporadically doing just below okay. <laughs> then the place that I go for that, to change that outcome, is to go to the starting point. Oh God, forgive me for the ways I've compared, for the ways I've stayed silent, and in my silence I've been complicit. Forgive me, Lord. For when I've spoken up, but not out of the right motives, when I've spoken up to manipulate, to shift focus of attention, to move things in my direction, forgive me, Lord, for those times when I should have been silent. Forgive me, Lord, when my actions pretend like it doesn't matter to my neighbor or the person who's my neighbor or on the other side of the globe. Pretend me, forgive me, Lord, when I pretend that those decisions that I make don't have consequences to them. God, forgive me for the things that I haven't even sought out to know because I'm worried that knowing will force me to change who I am in my behavior. God, forgive me for chosen ignorance and then forgive me for when I do know for how long it takes me to move in the direction of living like you've called me to live. Oh God, if I begin to understand the extent to which your forgiveness is willing to move into my life, maybe then I can love just a little bit better. Maybe a lot better if I just understood forgiveness. There's another beautiful part of this. It, it's a part that we don't talk about very often, 
but it just jumps out from the page if you read the story. This is an incredibly sensuous, tactile story. Here's this woman whose heart connection to Jesus is so profound, so deep, that she just weeps in his presence. Her tears flow over his feet. She bends down and wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet, anoints the feet. That's a little over the top. A little uncomfortable in this mixed crowd on church on a Sunday morning to say, wow, there's a lot of touching going on there. Here's what I think is powerful about this. So often, at that time and today, we have this sense in which this body that God has given us somehow fights against our spirituality. That, that I fight against the vessel in which my soul dwells. I would propose to you that in this passage and in so many others, that Jesus honors exactly what this woman is doing. And here's the truth of the gospel, that this vessel is God's temple. It's no longer that the Spirit dwells in the synagogue or dwells in the four walls of this church. The invitation is that God's Spirit makes your body God's temple. And so, the words I speak become expressions of that temple. The things I hear become the things that get put into God's temple. The way in which I breathe and taste, the ways in which I touch, this is all an expression of God's Spirit dwelling within and this temple becoming something that is used by God, for God, in honor of God. And all of those wonderful ways by which we take in information and give out information, the way we take in data and feelings and express those same feelings, the way we think, the way we feel, all of those are part of God's beautiful temple. You, me, the Spirit's dwelling place. All of that wonderful expression of the woman who's anointed his feet is honored by Jesus because it comes out of a posture of all I am belongs to Christ. It's what moves Jesus, I think, to stay at the well when the woman comes and engage her in conversation. I think it's what moves him into the community and presence of the leper to touch him and be close to him. It's, I think, in part why he touches the guy's eyes who's blind because there's something in that intimate moment that reflects this is holy ground, this is sacred ground, and this is not something to be dismissed it is God in us. That's the passage from the reading in Galatians for this morning. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. What a beautiful depiction that she gives to us of what it means to let all of who we are be an expression of faith to our Savior.
So this morning, I just simply ask, are there any here that, like me, would say, okay, I guess I'm one of the Simons, Lord. I have lived in that place where I, I feel like you've blessed me, but I probably take some credit for the success, Lord, because I'm not like those ten other people. I also have to confess, Lord, I don't love like you call me to love. So there's something wrong here with the formula. I find myself competing for all the wrong reasons. Comparing on all the wrong dimensions. I'm Simon, Lord, and what I need is to be forgiven for all of those things. Because what I want, I want to be able to love like you've called me to love. I want to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, touch with your hand. I don't want to get caught up over and over again living in my own strength. I want to be your temple. And I want to love like only your spirit can teach me to love. All of me, Lord. All of me. Could we take inventory this morning? How are we doing at loving? Let's pray. Invite the band to come forward. I invite you to lean into God's Spirit. Here's what I want to say before I pray for us. So easy for us. I need to rephrase that. It's so easy for me to keep this faith journey an intellectual exercise. But when I let it sink into my heart and ask that God would cleanse all of me, my thoughts, my emotions, my actions, I realize that there are so many pieces that I find so easy to hold back, to cling on to. Jesus has named our future.
it's this. Live like you're forgiven. Calling out for us a new nature. Live in love. There's no recognition of the past. Jesus never names the sins. He just calls both the woman and Simon into a future that is defined by being forgiven and characterized by being loving. Thank you, Lord, for calling us into a place that we could never be on our own. Into a lifestyle that is beyond our comprehension. The truth is, Lord, that you ought to say to us, view yourself as one who has a debt of 200 years of wages more than we could ever repay. That's what you offer. And you simply forgive what we ask. So this morning, help our request to be total. All of us, Lord. Send your light into the darkest corners of our journey. Pour your spirit into our life in ways that take our breath away. Help us to be your fragrant gift to others. For Simon said, as the people did, who is this that forgives sins? Can't God only do that? Jesus, you tell us that we can. We can forgive. So this morning, Lord, Give us the courage to step into that place where we forgive the people who have oppressed us, the perpetrators, where we have been victims. Help us to forgive those who have held us down, those who have abused us, those who have stepped in front of and cut in line, whatever the case might be. Lord, those whose lives had made it difficult for us to live out what we think our calling is, And to not wait for them to ask forgiveness. To not give our power to them, waiting for them to make it right, but instead to take ownership for the power that you give us to forgive now. To forgive now. Because you've given us the privilege of offering forgiveness. Let us own that privilege as our own today. Having been forgiven ourselves, Lord, give us the strength to be forgivers. And let that be our first step in living a life of total, complete love. Thank you, Father, for your patience, (laughs) for your grace, for your forgiveness. Amen.